never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview because I'm going to learn a lot and I'm going to be taking on my own prejudices, probably you guys too, because when do you get a chance to talk to a stripper? Huh? You, I mean, really, honestly, talk to a woman who has been working in the sex industry and 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 being being out there and making her experience, making her life, uh, living through, through maybe a bit more challenging times. When do we honestly talk about sex? When do we honestly talk about, about maybe the things that we are not so proud of? Today, I have got the honor and the privilege of doing exactly that to actually explore the life that Hannah has lived and her amazing transformation and all the great great shit she's doing now to help others live the life full of intention and full of full of uh, continuous action in the right direction oh i can't wait to talk so hannah welcome to my show thank you i'm i'm looking forward to this conversation oh uh, it is so beautiful because sex is regardless where you are it is kept under the carpet it's kept in the bedroom uh unless of course the alcohol and the money comes out and then ah oh, no holds barred uh, it was mm -hmm. when i moved from from germany to the uk it became for me extremely clear because the uk people are incredibly prudish during the daytime and then nighttime comes and they turn into vampires mm. sexual vampires that are fueled by really sex and alcohol and bring that out and then no more no holds barred um mm -hmm. or should i say no holds barred no <laughs> too too much <laughs> it is brutal so that as a as a setup for our interview so um we're gonna talk about taboos today we're going to talk about uh about more those things that normally happen behind closed doors and i think that is really important because only by us being honest about the the this kind of other life that is happening in many people's lives um can we actually address it and can it bring it out and talk honestly about it and i thank you so much for being so open and, and transparent tell me how did your life start out you didn't you didn't wake up one day when you were eight and say, Hey mommy, I know what I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be a stripper. Hey, mm -hmm. you know, I do mm -hmm. that every day. I take my jimmies off and put my jimmies back on. <laughs> mm -hmm. no. mm -hmm. How how did you end up in the sex industry? Yeah, so I'm glad you you phrased it that way right now because um that is the stigma that's the under understood what people how how people understand it is what i meant that's how people typically think about it it's like this this experience that comes from a major desperation or or a need or something that the woman is like in such a tough position that she has to enter that type of industry and while i absolutely can see that as true in hindsight that wasn't the case for me. I was literally 12 years old telling my dad, I want to be a stripper when I turn 18. And so it was that for me. And I think- May I ask, not, were you born into a, a family of strippers or is there is there a Not at all, background? no, no, no. Oh, right, okay. No, Thank not you. at all, not at all. But um, I don't, I'm not saying I promote that whatsoever, but that was my, um, 
my thought process, even that young. And I think that that just speaks volumes to the culture that I grew up in. Just, you know, in, in the States, at least it's very, um, patriarchal women are seen as commodities in a number of ways you drive down the freeway you see naked not naked but lingerie covered women on billboards selling alcohol or selling perfume or whatever you know it's it's promoted in a number of directions that it's okay to sell yourself in that way to be promoted and you are the best you are the one that is like more valuable if somebody wants to buy you in a sense and so I thought that that was power I thought that that was empowerment and at that age, 12, 13, I had already started getting attention from, from men, from boys, not men at that time, but boys. And um, I started to see, oh, this is an angle. This is a thing that is is working for me. I could make money doing this. And so I just had the idea. I would say things like that here and there to my dad and he would shut it down immediately and be like, shut the fuck up, like stop saying stuff like that. And just tell me like, shut it down. But um, long story short, at 16 years old, that was the very first time I stepped into the industry, actually. And I met a person um, online. It was a stranger. I'd never met him before. It was after a very, very short messaging interaction. I was seeking this out. I met him in the middle of the night. Um, I still can't even believe that this is what I did. Like In hindsight, it's like, where did I get the balls to do this? I met this man in the middle of the night. We ended up having sex for money. It was not my first time. I, I didn't lose my virginity this way. So I was already kind of promiscuous at that time. And I had sex with him for money. I needed it for a school trip. And I just had this bright idea that that would be a good way to do it. I got the money. And then there was this like split reaction inside of me. Because on one hand, I was like, wow, did I just figure something out? I have this money now that I didn't have 30 minutes ago. This is crazy. And then on the other hand, there was definitely a lot of trauma and anxiety and negative impact playing out that I had no idea how to name or process at the time, like having nightmares, feeling really anxious about what did I just do? Nobody can know about this, the shame, that type of thing. And um, it, I stayed in the industry for uh, the next eight years or so. And that started about a year after that first experience with stripping. I was in the club and that type of environment for three-ish years, four years until it transitioned basically to full-time escorting with with private clients like outside of the strip club and sugar baby sugar daddy type of dynamics and after a certain amount of time that served to be really 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 challenging to do on on at the same time as maintaining the romantic relationships that I wanted to have in my personal life and so as you can imagine there's some conflict of interest there and so um at some point, the scale started to tip the the money, the lifestyle, the compliments, all of that kind of stuff was no longer as worth it to me as it used to be. And the accumulation of like, pain that I was collecting over the years of giving myself away in all these different ways that I wouldn't have done otherwise, you know, if it wasn't with a price tag on it, I started to wake up to so much of the reality of what I was doing. And that started my healing journey mm. out of the industry about four years ago. Very intriguing, very intriguing, but I can see that happening so easily. And indeed, it is happening around the world in certainly Western societies um, to a stunning degree. And mm -hmm. there's also been there has been an erosion of our I don't want to call it values, but uh, those things that we accept as normal. Um, I I come from a time when there were no dick pics. 
or boob pics or whatever uh, things. Whilst mm -hmm. when my sons now, uh, when they were at high school, I would say 80% um, of the boys and girls were sending these kind of pictures, naked pictures around as like a sales mm -hmm. catalog. And you, you just think, right. ah, that's bizarre. And there is that is not prostitution. That is not escort service. That's not sex industry. That's just normal. So mm -hmm. therefore, there has been a slide in our society uh, towards more sex. Well, is it even sex? Is it what is it? What is happening to us? So it's not just it's just not just you. It is a far bigger thing. Have you got any clue? Have you got any any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, this sometimes the, the these words sound a little bit prudish, and that's definitely not how I mean it. <laughs> but um, truly, I think it's a collective, and not just here, but like the world collectively in so many more modern societies, a disconnect from the true like sacredness of our sexuality. It's something mm -hmm. that is just blase. It's, it's just, yeah, I can just give this here. I can give that there. And it's not a big deal. Like, mm -hmm. what do you mean? You saw my tits, who cares? It's this something, it's this thing that has like, it's, it's lost its meaning. It's lost its, it's, um, I, I can't think of the right word. I'm, I'm picturing like, exclusivity royalty that that type of vibe like it's lost its its mm -hmm. um sacredness really and so mm -hmm. it uh, in this hookup culture that we can just swipe left swipe right on tinder and have a date tonight and i can go out to the bar and i can have sex with someone tomorrow and like it's so accessible and i think that paired with um the collective wounding around self-worth and not being taught and empowered to value yourself in certain ways we end up just playing into these quick instant gratification type of pleasures, just like with drinking, with drugs, with binge eating, with whatever. And we, we lump sex and our sexuality into that category as well now. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And yeah. I believe uh, 100% I'm with you there. My goodness. Um, I certainly know from my journey that there was a lot of hiding involved. And you were already talking about this dichotomy of feelings there. But on the one hand, hey, cool, I just made money. And then on the other side, oh, my God, guilt, shame, my God. Um, what was the attitude of your parents towards sexuality? Were they more sort of free love hippie culture or more mm -hmm. uh, more no, proper, you know, you know, proper, you marry first and then have sex? What was the, what was that? Yeah. Um, I would say neither of those two, somewhere in the middle, maybe. Um, my parents separated when I was about five years old, and then I was with my dad solely until I was mid-teens when I moved in with my mom by choice at that time. And so most of my memory and stuff is is from being raised with my dad in his household. So he was always very clear that like I should not go out and have sex with a bunch of people, but... There was no, um, there was never like a sit down talk other than this one conversation that stands out very, very much yeah. at, um, at nine years old, I was nine years old. And I remember him telling me, and I, and in hindsight, I can see his motivation was to warn me of maybe ulterior motives or things that men do that, you know, ulterior motives and, and ways that women can be taken advantage of, et cetera. He told me 
women will give sex for love and men will fake love for sex. I don't believe that that's a true blanket statement. Like I'm not shaming men and women for their actions, but Uh, he told me that (laughs) that young. And so it planted this seed that like, oh, and this was absolutely backfired. This was not his intention, (laughs) but it planted this seed that like, oh, that's, if that's true, then if I can give my body away in some way, if I can make a guy feel desired, feel wanted, have this outlet, then maybe that's what will get him to claim me. That's what will get him to choose me, to want me to be his partner, to want me to, to, to love him, et cetera. And so um, there was this very unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship in my mind from very, very young that men and women have this sort of transactional exchange around sex mm. and, and romance and, and everything that goes with it. And then in my later high school years with my mom living in that household with her, she wasn't ever explicit or outward about what she was doing, but there would be times she was very, very low income at this time. And she would say, I would need money for school for X, Y, Z. And she'd say, okay, I don't have it. I'll go get it. She would leave. She would come back and have money. And so, you know, putting two and two together, I wasn't stupid. I understood there was something happening there. And so that definitely put, um, I would say modeled some of what was possible I guess you could say at that time, not in any positive way, but it planted the seeds and, and I was like, Oh, I could do that. And so, yeah. I mean, let's not be silly here. Uh, I take my hat off to your mom, um, because here she was a single mom, um, and daughter has a need. And instead of her putting herself first and saying, no, sorry, uh, I need that money for drink or so. She actually went out there and, and did whatever she had to do to help mm-hmm. you to look after you now that's a lioness that's that's a that's a woman who i i respect um that is uh, you can take a moral stance however much you want it is about her uh putting you first which makes her the heroine in my in your story um Mm-hmm. And we, it's so easy for for people to go on this moral high horse if they have never been in situations where there is no money, in situations where maybe selling your body is the only choice. Um, mm-hmm. And it is it is so common. If you go back in generations, uh, it was exactly the same thing. Um, it may be maybe mildly different. You know, an English girl uh, when when the Americans were stationed uh, over there prior to invading uh, invading Germany in 1944. Um, it is the amount of uh, English girls who rather preferred the Americans to the English boys uh, because the Americans had more money. Well, you know, mm-hmm. what what's the difference? Um, yeah. If you actually look at at what is driving our society, I'm sorry, money makes the world go round. And mm-hmm. and women have have taken advantage of their bodies for a very very long time, okay. Yeah. Even at a time when moral standards were very very different. So therefore, let's 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 be quite clear: there is no shaming whatsoever right. of the sex industry, uh, at least not from me. Um, I I very much understand the double edged sword that that is being played with there. Um. The only thing, I guess, well, bloody hell, if I go back in my own story, yes, I was a nude model. 
um, different times when I looked a bit different than, than now, but I was a new model there and I got $40 for standing in very, very uncomfortable poses to be drawn in, in a drawing club. Well, what's the bloody difference? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. I was, I certainly come from the wrong side of the tracks. So therefore would have things played out differently. Would mm -hmm. I maybe have gone the same route? Maybe. So. Mm -hmm. Here we are actually accepting that sometimes you do things in your life for pure survival or for pure gains, because at that moment, it looks like the right thing to do. How, mm -hmm. much, how much hiding was there at your time, coming back to that? How much did you hide that from your parents? Or did you play that quite openly? Did they know that you were an escort? Or did you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the first experience I ever had at 16, that was absolutely like under wraps. Nobody knew about that. And then my next exploration in that industry was at 17. I had a fake ID in the US, at least it's 18 and over for anything that you're going to do in that industry. Um, I was 17 and I couldn't walk into a strip club legally and start working. And so um, I had a fake ID and I knew that if I were to go to one of these like house stripping companies where they send women to like bachelor parties and that sort of thing, yeah. you only need an ID. You don't need a social security card. And so I signed myself up for that, did that a little bit at 17. That was also under wraps. And then at the time I was in a very um, jealous type of relationship. And so um, he had found out about this and it was, I was very shameful about it. And it, I stayed in that relationship for about another year and didn't do anything. And then at 19, after leaving that relationship, it was like, I felt like I had the freedom. I went and I signed myself up at an actual strip club. And so at that point I intended to keep it not secret, like as if I was trying to hide it, but I, I knew that like, you know, my dad, who I was living with very briefly for about a month at that time in between two places, um, I was moving towns, he wouldn't be excited about it, you know, and I knew that. And so I wasn't trying to make it known. But obviously, there was some changes, I was coming home with hundreds of dollars of groceries with just whatever the fuck I wanted to buy. And so he started asking me questions. And it got to the point where he was like, you can either tell me what you're doing, or you can get out, like get the fuck out of my house. And so I told him, I said, fine, I'll tell you, I'm not going to talk about it. And this is what I'm doing. And he got mad. He was upset for a couple of days, didn't talk to me for a couple of days. I um, slipped the exact amount of money that the rent was at his house at the time under the door on one of those two days that he wasn't talking to me, texted him. And I was like, hey, the rent is under your door, period. And then after that, he never mentioned it as a problem ever again. And it was just open from that point on. I wasn't like, you know, telling him in detail about all of my adventures, but I think he compartmentalized it enough to come to a place of acceptance by viewing it as like a business thing, as an entrepreneurial thing of like, I am making my own money. And not that he was happy about it in any way, but I honestly think that he was more accepting of that than he would have been if I would have gone and gotten a job at McDonald's, just, you know, working for somebody else's dream for pennies on the dollar type of thing. He could respect the entrepreneurial aspect of it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Again, that takes balls for a dad to transform and accept that. Again, we can, whatever your moral standard is, we have to look at the action of the man. He again, put you first put his love to you first 
and that is mm -hmm. powerful. Wow. I, I, that is a, a beautiful story that you're telling me there. We, it's so easy to think, oh my God, she did that all because she had to. Did you have fun? Was that a fun time um, for you with hindsight? The only, I've been asked this question before, the only thing that was fun in any way, like, cause I've done a massive, like a lifetime amount of healing and, and learning and unlearning and all of this stuff in the last handful of years that I've been out of the industry. And so my opinions on everything are very different now than they were in it. Absolutely. Um, but in hindsight, looking from where I am now, the things that were fun, the only things that were ever fun was being on the actual stage at the strip club, not the interactions with the clients or like the dances or whatever, but being on the actual stage, it was this very like Beyonce moment kind of feeling thing, like this performance outlet. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and that was always a part of my, like growing up, like I was a cheerleader. I did different things with like solos on choir and theater, that sort of stuff. So I enjoyed the performance outlet. And then um, I enjoyed the built-in workout of it. Like you're walking around dancing, listening to music all day long and giving a 30 minute lap dance is being, is like being in a wall sit for half an hour, you know? And so I was super fucking fit <laughs> during that time of my life. And uh, that was a perk, but exactly. other than that, nothing to do with client interactions, nothing to do with any experiences that was ever like yeah. fun or something that I would, I would want to do again. That's fair call. Um, may I ask directly? Um, when mm -hmm. in, in your paid work, did you ever have an orgasm yourself? So how did your body um, respond? Uh, leave, leave alone here, forget that for a moment. How did your body respond? No, so I actually would intentionally make that not be the case. Because for me, there was, I've also been asked the question of like, did I ever fall in love with one of these guys or something mm, like that? Yeah. And that is so far from the way that I experienced the industry. Like, um, and that was intentional. For me, it was always 110% transactional. It was business. I was there for money. I was mm. doing whatever I was doing in that moment for the money that I was going to walk out the door with at the end. Mm. And so it was very compartmentalized in my head. And that's what I stayed focused on the entire time. Nice. And yeah. Um, yeah. having a little bit of understanding at that time. Now it's, that's what I do. But at that time, I had a little bit of understanding about just like the, the hormones and the chemicals and the way that we bond and all of that type of stuff. And I know that chemically when a woman has an orgasm, anybody, when anybody has an orgasm on the energetic side of things as well, we become energetically, chemically, hormonally more connected to that thing in front of us. This is one of the reasons porn addiction is a thing because we're literally becoming bonded to that stimulus. And so I was very intentional about making sure that that actual physical pleasure to the most of my ability to control was absolutely not part of it because that's not what I was there for. And I was just really, really clear about that. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So there was this very clear divide uh, in your brain, this compartmentalization. Yeah. That is interesting. So you were, this was not something that you just sort of uh, fell into in the sense of it certainly became its life of its own. You had still control. You had still, you were in the driver's seat. That is not necessarily, yes. but that is not necessarily the, the story with many women. Or am I wrong there? 
am I am I well, are there too many prejudices in my my head? Too many no. film stories in my head. No, no, no. I think that um saying I was in the driver's seat is true only in a very like snow globe type of way. Like I was in the driver's seat in that realm, in that situation. But on the grand scheme of things, if we're including all of reality, I was not in the driver's seat because I was still at the end of the day, reliant on these men. I was giving parts of myself away that I wouldn't have done otherwise if there wasn't a transaction involved for the money that on the deepest level, I didn't believe I could create other ways. And so I don't think that there is any version of empowerment, and this is my radical opinion now, I don't believe there's any version of empowerment for the woman that exists in sex work. Um, But I know that that is another one of our massively hurtful, in my opinion, societal conditionings that if she's choosing to do it, if she sets the price, if she's in control, she's empowered. But it's not true because like I said, our sex is sacred. Our sex is a part of our body. It's not a service. Like you go get a fucking oil change. That's a service. You don't care what that dude looks like. You don't care what he smells like. You don't care if he's happy to be there. If he's not happy to be there. When you show up to have a sexual interaction for money, you are expected to be a hundred different things. And it's not just sex ever. There's an emotional component to it. The person paying for sex wants to feel a certain type of way on an emotional level as well. They want to feel like you like being there, like you enjoy them on some level. And whether that's true or not, you're expected to perform in that way. You know, so it's so much more than just a service. It's a, it's a performance. It's a, it's a dissociation in yourself from what's real and what's, what's your truth and and what you're doing in that moment. And so um, I don't believe there's any version of empowerment in it. Truly, um, that's now my perspective outside of the industry. But at the time, I was completely brainwashed by all of that and believed that I was empowered because I set the prices, I set the times, I set whatever, and I got to choose who this guy was or, or wasn't that I was going to say yes to. But once I started to wake up and get out of the industry, it was it was definitely a breakdown before a breakthrough type of thing where I had to really face how much my self-worth was put in their hands, was put in the dollar amount, was put in the the validation and approval that I had from them and not actually coming from me. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And I guess that then automatically leads uh, to, to the next question. Um, where did the alcohol come in? Uh, if you are truly an entrepreneur who is ice cold, there are no emotions. This is a pure transactional story. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have necessarily to numb yourself. Or what did the alcohol do to you? What mm-hmm. what function did it have for you? Yeah. So I think that so when I worked at the strip club specifically, I was very very clear about how I was going to do that, and and I stuck to that the whole time. So many women end up in this like trap in that type of environment where they they're drinking, they're smoking, they're doing drugs, they're taking pills, all this stuff to like survive the environment. And it started taking a toll on me after enough time because it is such a toxic environment that that was why I left it and took my private clients outside so I could be in more control of my own environment, who I was around, etc. But um, I had started drinking alcohol at 12 was the very first time I ever got drunk. And then 13 on, I was actively partying. I graduated high school two years early at 16. And so I was a 13 year old freshman um, going to parties, you know? And so I was getting blackout drunk from that age on. 
And then it turned into this very weekend warrior thing where I would go out and it was just fun and it was just social, but I was getting blacked every single time. And then um, once I started, I was not drinking during the daytime when I was at the strip club, but I would go out at night every single night with my friends once I was back home and party and, and escape myself that way. Right. And so with the the clarity I had about how I wanted to do it with the compartmentalization and the dissociation and all of that, you said that means maybe I didn't need the alcohol to numb, but I absolutely did because that's not how we function as humans. You know, that's not how we're designed to function. That's how I was forcing myself to function so sure. that I could justify what I was doing and do it the way I thought I wanted to at the time. And so um, when a sugar daddy wanted to fly me to Vegas and pay me for the weekend and whatever, it was a glamorized version of escapism the entire time I was drinking and smoking and they thought I was so cool because I would roll a joint you know so it was like <laughs> it was it was uh, it was fantasized and fetishized uh, but it was 100% self-abuse the entire time and by the time I stepped out of the industry completely it was really bad like I was drinking like a 12 pack in the middle of the day by myself at home type of drinking and so <laughs> so it had gotten to a point where I needed to I needed to feel everything that I was numbing out <laughs> yeah oh hell yes <laughs> that rings a bell <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay um, it was rough. <laughs> but, exactly so i mean often enough you know months and years before you you change comes that change that you're sick and tired of being sick and tired let's call it what it is right um what helped you or what was the catalyst what changed you Honestly, it was my very toxic relationship at that time. The last relationship I was in before I left the industry, like personal relationship before I left the industry. Um, he was constantly disapproving of me. Naturally, there was a lot of conflict around what I was doing. He wanted me to stop. He wanted me to get a regular job, all that type of stuff. And um, I started to have more awareness about what was happening started learning more, reading more, all this stuff. And I started to wake up to the, to the, to the reality that I was a match for this person in my romantic life because he oh. was disapproving of me. And Ooh. deep down, I was disapproving of me. Ooh. And so then yeah. it was this whole like heartbreak, <laughs> all the, everything <laughs> came to the surface and I was able to feel it all break down before the breakthrough for sure. And then the relationship crumbled. Um, I stepped out of the industry and it was really like a Phoenix from the ashes type of thing from there. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I can see that coming. And of course that is, that is the moment of truth. That is when you really look yeah. in the mirror and you actually begin to see the, the, the reality. And often enough, the pendulum then swings completely the other way around and you think, Oh yeah. my God. Um, I mean, there are several, several things happen at the same time. First of all, the money tries up because you're used to a certain mm -hmm. lifestyle. Uh, you're just mm -hmm. going out there. Oh, that, that makeup looks good. What, $200 for the lipstick? Yeah, sure. Give me two. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and suddenly, ah, shit, no more money. What? How did you go about that? You can't go on the dole and say, I'm sorry, uh, I'm a stripper, <laughs> but I don't want anymore. <laughs> how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big part of my healing process. Um, dissociate or not dissociating disentangling my self-worth and the ability i had to charge x amount of dollars for an hour of my body yeah. with a dude that i didn't want to sleep with anyways but like yeah. i was able to do it because of the dollar amount 
I started to realize how much my self-worth was tied up in my sexuality and my like being desired by somebody. And I had always been very entrepreneurial. I was raised that way. I was, I always knew I would do something on my own, but I didn't have any clarity of what it was partially because I was so distracted in this industry and in this lifestyle that I started to like frantically look for what is the next thing? What am I going to do? What can I start? What kind of business can I start? And um, I knew I had a massively unique understanding of why these men, 40s, 50s, 60s, most of them either married or divorced or both, were coming to me and paying me this money. I, I realized, oh, that's a light bulb. I have an understanding of why their relationships are failing, of mm. why they are so unhappy, of why those needs aren't being met, and why they're paying me in the first place. Mm. And then I started to, that was kind of the bridge. The very first um, like avatar person that I started coaching in my business many years ago was divorced men over 40 who realized that they didn't have time on their side anymore. They wanted to get things right without repeating the pains of the past. And I was able to help them do that. And so the slow buildup of learning and allowing myself to charge money for those types of services that were immensely more valuable than anything that my <laughs> pussy could do in an hour, you know, um, like the, the, the challenge of being able to charge hundreds or thousands or whatever dollars for something that my mind, my soul, my emotional investment in this person could give them to change their life. Yeah. That was a really slow climb because I had to do a lot of work to disentangle my, my identity from my sexuality being the thing that was the most valuable about me. Isn't it? And that's so bizarre. Um, you can easily yeah. put a, a, a money, a money value, a monetary value on sex, but to actually, Uh, when you give something actually far more valuable and far more life-sustaining, um, uh, you think, oh my God, I'm not worth it. I mean, there must have mm -hmm. been a huge imposter syndrome uh, going on oh, yeah. you there. Um, how did you deal with oh, yeah. that? I mean, because here you are, you're, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I stopped I'm, drinking. Oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. Very, very <laughs> good important point. So how did that actually go? How did it go? You can't just go from, from I don't know, 20, 30, 50 units a day, and that's your breakfast, mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. zero. Did you go into a withdrawal? Yeah. Did you have a hard um, time? So for me, it was an overnight move. Mm -hmm. I had obviously mentally been thinking about it, like, and all the shame spiral, you know, I need to stop as I'm driving to the liquor store. And then drunk later, I need to stop as I'm drunk driving back to the liquor store. You know what I mean? And so yes. like oh, God, <laughs> the yes. shame started getting higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And I, I, I knew like, this was a very soul motivated type of thing, a soul driven thing that I was going to ruin my future and ruin what I was starting to build if I didn't change that part of my life. And so it was an overnight decision. Um, I completely stopped and I literally sat on the couch like I was physically unable to do anything else and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried for four days straight after like four first days of sobriety, just crying and crying and crying. Everything around me started to be a trigger. I couldn't even watch TV because every single commercial, every single show has alcohol all over the place. Of course it I is. couldn't I would take certain streets in my town because I didn't want to drive past certain stores and billboards and everything was, was at the surface. All the stuff that I had been pushing down for a decade at that point was at the surface. And, um, 
it was hard. It was really, really hard. I did a lot of self-help type of stuff. I um, wrote many apology letters to myself. I did a lot of purging of the the emotional and physical pain that I had caused myself for so many years. And then I just started massively investing in, in those types of things, coaching, therapy, retreats, that type of stuff. And, and that supported me along the way. Beautiful. So exactly, you, you actually put a power team together of uh, coaches or of people who have been further down the line. So you, mm -hmm. you actually took action, massive action. Uh, into yeah. that direction but I love it that that you that you allowed yourself that pity party that you allowed mm -hmm. yourself that to be the victim finally to to come yeah. out of this artificial I'm the woman I'm the power the power player here into actually crash burn yeah and all um yeah brilliant but you and I we are both clear that action needs to be taken And so you didn't actually stay in that pity party. Why do so many people feel so attracted to have that victim label and continue to wear yeah. it? Wear it often with yeah. pride. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it allows the story, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to stay alive that they aren't responsible for the pain that they're in. You know, it allows them to say to stay um, guilt free. It allows them to stay scot free with with taking the actual responsibility of being the one in charge of whether their life fucking sucks or whether it's amazing. And um, that can be a really empowering thing when you take it into your own hands. But it's also really disempowering and, and confronting feeling when you look around and it's like, oh, shit, my life is horrible. And I'm the one responsible. Is that what you're telling me? And so it's hard to get over that initial acceptance. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think that people aren't victims. I believe people are victims of all kinds of different circumstances all the time. But it's a matter of if you choose to stay in that in your mind, are you a exactly. having a victim mindset about how you're addressing it? Or are you able to claim some of your own power and become the creator of your own life? Um, whether you're crying while you do it or not, like, are you willing to move forward? Or do you want to just keep circling and circling and circling? Because there's exactly. no forward motion when you don't, you're not the one in charge. Exactly. Um, victim to survivor is the first trans transformation. And then survivor mm -hmm. to thriver. That's the second transformation that is waiting to happen. And so many people are actually stuck on the victim victim side. And I guess I was there for four decades um, because a lot of shit has happened to me. And I had not the understanding that maybe I'm part of the problem at times. Um, in all fairness, there were other times when really shit has happened to me. End of the story. Mm -hmm. No no fault of my own. Um, and I reveled in that like a pick in mud. Um, and with hindsight, what a wasted time that was. Um, but it took it took a breakdown. It took really the low of the low for me to recognize that and to hear your story, where essentially there was not a. I mean, there could have been far lower lows than what mm -hmm. you have experienced. I'm so pleased that 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 never was the case. There was never in your story was a pimp. Uh, there was never um, someone who uh, maybe brutally took control of you. Um, mm -hmm. So 
this is this is beautiful and that for sure is not true for many other women who have ended up in the in the sex industry um yeah absolutely and this is a statistic that like blows people's minds when i say it, it doesn't blow my mind because i i saw the reality all around me and i absolutely agree with you and, and recognize and have recognized since i was in the industry even and after that my experience of it was like in the top whatever percent it was not it is not the norm for somebody to just have this luxurious whatever and and not be be physically abused or mentally abused or have somebody that's almost in control of it you know there's there's so much pain and trauma and and horrible dynamics that exist in that industry and that is the majority it's not the minority and so um the statistic that is is true is women who step into the sex industry the second they step into it in whatever form immediately their chance their their risk of premature mortality dying for no reason increases by 40 percent you almost double your chances of unnecessary death by choosing to participate in that industry and that speaks volumes to what is the norm for the women in the industry wow I was not aware of this this statistic, but again, it doesn't surprise me. Um, mm -hmm. It is, oh, wow, okay. Um, what is the way out? I mean, for you, you have had this beautiful transformation and you have you have maybe seen the light, whatever whatever drove you to change was powerful. What would you advise other women who are in the in the sex industry and who are still a bit away from that that transition? What advice would you mm -hmm. give them? Yeah, is to come face to face with the parts of yourself that don't believe you have another option. Hmm. Because as soon as you're willing to recognize that, yeah. you can start to hear how untrue it is. You can start to question it if you want to choose to continue to believe that or not. And it starts to open the doors to, to other things, you know, like I could literally go knock doors and ask people if I could paint the house number on their curb for $15 all day long for six days a week and probably make a hundred grand in a year. You know, I could probably do that. But when you are so conditioned through society, through your upbringing, through trauma, through whatever, to see that your body is the most valuable part of you, which is not oh. true then it becomes like those other ideas just don't even they don't even have access to your mind because it's such a quick entry into oh i can just do this for money oh i won't do this for very long and then you're at the strip club 10 years later you know and so it's right. like allowing yourself to think bigger than just what you have become comfortable with of what is possible for you what if you did use your skill sets in a way that is you know, more than just your body and what your body has to offer somebody. Wow. Beautiful, beautifully said. And that holds true uh, to basically everyone who is listening. Um, that is, there are so many opportunity, opportunities out there. There is so, so many possibilities are out there. My goodness. But you don't see it if you don't ask the right questions. Um, okay. It is, why me? Why me? Well, guess what? Your brain comes up with a lot of reasons why you. And uh, so maybe, maybe just maybe begin to dream of different questions. How can yeah. I? And ask your brain 
a, a different question, it will always come up with an answer. It will mm -hmm. always tell you. And whatever you say, if you say, why me? It will tell you 20 reasons. If you mm -hmm. say, how can I make money in another way? It will come up with reasons. And it's yep. just the, the way that you phrase those questions can be more powerful or less powerful, but play around with it. And that is in your own mm -hmm. mind. That's the freedom of choice that you have got. And you guys have take, already taken the action because you've started listening to our interview here. The sheer fact that you're listening to here right now, you took action. You mm -hmm. uh, were you you changed your future. You changed already the outcome. So just imagine what was to happen if you now add another choice to that and another choice. Mm -hmm. Some of these mm -hmm. choices might not be so right. Okay, we we don't get it right all the time. Uh, but you know, imagine, just imagine. And that is where the power is. Yeah. That's where you are. Hannah, you turned around and you turned around by one decision at a time. The first one was mm -hmm. to stop drinking. So, to, mm -hmm. and to allow yourself to feel. I think that is mm -hmm. the, the key other thing. We are running away from, from our feelings. I certainly did for crying out loud. Uh, I was a retard at 46 when it came to my emotions. They were complete waves of neurochemicals that completely had me under control. I didn't even know what they were. And that was the hardest for me to deal with this anger. How does anger feel? How does sadness feel? How does happiness feel? How does joy, mm -hmm. frustration, etc., without numbing it immediately or running away into whatever, um, yeah. work or sex or porn or whatever. So mm -hmm. it is... That is what you're doing. And that is Hannah, that is where you are nowadays helping others to actually explore those avenues. And yeah, um, it's it, you are constantly changing. You are becoming a better version of yourself every day. What are sort of the, the valuable uh lessons or the valuable steps you have taken recently? Give us some examples uh where you said, Wow, I did that. That was really cool. And I what what makes you learn? So just give the uh, give our audience a bit more examples what is possible out there. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that allowed me to start shifting is the realization and embracing and like no matter how much you have to remind yourself of it, if it's 150 times a day, remind yourself of it again and again and again and again, that you are not your past. Yes, we all have a past. And it, <laughs> yes. it's like there's a balance of both. Yes. Our past contributes to who we become because it shapes us, it affects us, it impacts yes. us. And it doesn't define you unless you allow yourself to be defined by it. Yeah. And so it's like if you grew up in a family of lawyers, you might think that it's totally possible for you to be a lawyer. If you grew up in a family of janitors, you might think that being a lawyer is like completely out of range for you, but it's not, you know, it's, it's truly, it comes down to what, what were you taught versus what do you actually want to believe now? And then doing the inner work to, to bridge that gap so that you, you can be the creator of your life in your power and knowing that you can trust yourself to do that. And so for me, one example that's coming to mind of just like the way that my life has changed in the last year alone, um, I have been, I was born and raised in California. I moved around a couple different cities and locations in the state, but that's where I was from. And I had a super strong Cali girl identity that like, I'll die in California. I'm never going to leave. This is the best place. I have no reason to leave, whatever. And so um, <laughs> I had an identity crisis when it came time two years ago. I met the, the man that I'm with now. 
uh, he is from New York. We met online. He's from New York. I'm from California, opposite sides of the country. And we wanted to move in together after enough time of going back and forth and doing the long distance thing. And we somehow decided on the center of America. <laughs> and so we um, that entailed a cross-country road trip with me and all of my pets and all of my animals and selling all my stuff. And I did not anticipate how hard it was going to be to let go of so much history, so much of my identity that was wrapped up in where I'm from, being so close to my family, knowing where I'm at, knowing how to drive the streets, all that kind of stuff. And so it was this major like jumping into the unknown type of feeling. And it was literally unknown, but on the emotional level, it was very triggering. It was very scary of like, what am I doing? Is this the right decision? I shouldn't do this. I don't know what people are like there. And it was just this whole identity crisis. And so allowing myself to keep going, even when I was crying, driving across the country at times, half the time I'm singing and dancing. It was an amazing thing. Wow, this new horizon's coming. How great. And then the other half the time I'm like crying. Oh, this is the wrong choice. You know, and so it's like just allowing yourself to feel whatever needs to be felt at the moment and realize that those emotional waves are not the capital T truth. They are your experience of what you're going through in that moment, but they're not they're not the thing that you need to make your decisions on when you are connected into that deeper part of yourself, that intuition that's excited about the change, that does want to try for that big giant dream, that big goal, whatever it is. So it's like just believing that when you jump, the net will appear and you can continue to put one foot in front of the other, even if it's something that you've never seen as possible before. Uh, how beautiful you said. Uh, it is, I could not agree more. And they're often so, there's so much to be gained, even if it is just tuition fees in your life that you pay, because not everything that you attempt will work out, um, but mm -hmm. you will always become a stronger person, a different person, a more mature person um, through mm -hmm. your through whatever happens as a result of you taking action. And sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. And I don't know, the last two, three years, unfortunately, I learned a lot. So my goodness, but I take action. I'll continuously every day take action. And for that, I'm proud. I'm, I live intentionally. And that is a big, big change from my past. And I love it the way mm -hmm. you say it. I mean, we, we have got exactly the same motto the past does not equal the future and i think that is so important mm -hmm. you are you have the epitome you are you are the, the classic example of that you're going out there you're kicking ass you are helping others to transform and what a beautiful beautiful change that is if you think back even two three years now you are growing you're becoming stronger I can't wait to get mm -hmm. you back in two, three years time or even a year's time because there will be a very different Hannah sitting there. Uh, Hannah with, you know, I don't know, a sword in her hand being ready to take on the world. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. are ready. You're yep. changing. And it is beautiful. And it's, ah, oh, mm -hmm. man, this is, the, the world is 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 a heap of shit at the moment that's accepted for what it is there are many challenges that we have got but we have got the power of choice we've got the power our energy we can use this energy for good or you can use the energy to play candy crush or mm -hmm. maybe you know it is completely up to you what you want to do 
Hannah, you are an amazing woman. Uh, and wow, you thank you for your transparency, for your authenticity, for your integrity. Wow, all these beautiful words, they actually mean something in your life. And they are, they, you, you, I'm honored that you came onto my show today. Um, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, and thank you for that. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, to stay in touch with me, I would say Instagram is like my home on the internet, at Hannah Spanky, um, H-A-N-N-A-H-S-P-A-N-K-E. That's my handle on any social media platform you you can probably find me on. Instagram is the place to find me, though, to stay in the most current contact and create free value, free content every single day. So you can kind of click the follow button, hook in, and then you can be along for the ride and, and get a lot out of it just by following just for free. And then if you're interested in, in working with me in any capacity, you can always message me um, on Instagram. You can reach out via email, hannahspanky at gmail.com. And if you want to stay connected through email, my website is currently under construction being rebuilt right now. But if you go to hannahspanky.com, you can sign up for the emailing list. There's not much to that homepage other than a sign up box, but you can add, add your name and email to it. And um, for couples, because that's a major part of my work that I do now, if you are interested in growing together and doing the work together and not having to choose between your Mexico vacation and paying for therapy, you can do it all in one. I'm hosting a couples retreat in Hawaii upcoming in May at the end of May. And so if you're interested in any of that and you want to check uh -huh. that out, you can go to hannahspanky.com slash couples retreat Hawaii uh, for all the information there. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. You find all of Hannah's links down there. Whilst you're down there, press the like and subscribe button, because then at least you get informed about all the beautiful things that are happening uh, on my show. If you want to know more about me, you might head over to mystepstosobriety.com, uh, where you get all the information about my journey this year, about the books I've written, etc. So there is there there's constant move in those people who are willing to take the, the the world, well, the bull by its horns. And both Hannah and me, we're there. We're, we want to go out there and become better human beings. And if you guys want to come along for the ride, hey, you know, just just come along. That, that, that mm -hmm. journey is so exciting. I love it, love it, love it. I wouldn't have it any other way, regardless what our past was. The past does not equal the future. Brilliant. Hannah, mm -hmm. you're an amazing woman. Thank you so much for your time. I truly, truly appreciate it. And you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. Thank you. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.